my objective for doing a show like this. I wasn't like having utopian ambitions or anything like that. Not just a representational versus, you know, Vox versus this kind of thing. I think it is just different types of uh, work going on. Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. Jacob Lunderby, whom we're speaking with, organized three exhibitions in his artist studio at 915 Spring Garden Street. We were surprised by the groupings of artists in each show, so we're talking to him today about why he turned his studio into a gallery and who he chose. So what's the idea behind the three exhibitions? Uh, Well, the basic idea behind the three exhibitions was uh, to use my space to show work by people that I knew in Philadelphia that might not typically be seen in a group show context together. For example, uh, Christopher Farrow, we were looking at his drawing of his basement, uh, might not typically be seen in a group show with uh, Paul Swenbeck's work, for example. Uh, Just the aesthetics and uh, range of work and uh, attention. And uh, I've known both of them for quite a while, and I just thought it was an interesting way to, like, you know, see what happens when they're in the same room together. So what happens to your artwork while you have stuff hanging? Uh, most of it gets stored away, and then um, when I'm not you know, hosting a visit or something, I pull a little table out, and I can still work on a small things on a little table from time to time. But usually the, uh, the studio goes on hold for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we were wondering if that made you crazy because you wanted to get back in the studio, and yet you couldn't. Oh, it's just a little resting period. You know, it's, <laughs> It's good to save it up a little bit every now and then. So let's talk about what's on the walls and what's in the show. Um, you mentioned Paul Swinbeck mm-hmm. and... Uh, Chris Farrow. Chris Farrow, who has a charcoal drawing, and Paul Swinbeck has... Can you describe that for us? Uh, Paul Swinbeck has uh, three pieces. Um, the upper left piece uh, is called Spirit. The middle piece, uh, that's the photograph with the, uh, the wire sculpture in front of it, is called uh, uh, Birth and Feeder. On the wall is also, uh, I think it's gouache and resin, uh, painting on a piece of plexiglass. I don't know what, what I can do to describe it necessarily, but it's a really colorful and kind of psychedelic and kind of science fiction-y, I would say. Uh, a little bit of a personal mythology, I think, with the spirit thing. I think it has something to do with the soul. Do you think it compares well with the drawing here, the charcoal drawing? I think, I think what's interesting about that is like the sense of touch is like you know very like specific to both pieces. But I, I think the uh, ad hoc feeling of this specific work of Paul versus uh, something like this uh, drawing. This drawing is uh, coming out of like repetition of going down into the basement every night for a year, basically to uh, work on this drawing, so like returning, 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 and uh, this sort of slow evolution of this thing. Can you tell us a little about this building that we're in? The little bit I know about it is it's been an artist studio building for about 35 years. Who are some of the artists who are in here? You know, I don't know many of the artists in here, actually. I've been in here for about five years. And, so you uh, still have time to settle in? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I just come in and I just go to work, basically. It's a, it's a workspace, primarily, when it's not a temporary exhibition space. And um, where do you go to work? 
Where do I go to work? Work? Yeah. Labor work? I work with Paul Swenbeck and, uh, and his wife, Joy Feasley, quite a bit doing uh, preparator work. Um, I just came from the Independent Seaport Museum today. We're doing an exhibition there. And um, when I'm not working with Paul and Joy, I teach part-time at the community college. Uh, I teach design and drawing over there. And then I also teach drawing over at Drexel University. So let's talk about your work a little bit. You have two pieces in this show. Mm -hmm. Can you describe them and tell the materials that they're made out of? Sure. Um, well, they're made with an inkjet print on a frosted mylar. It's like a translucent film. Photos that I've been shooting around Philadelphia for the past seven months or so. Like I'll find a, a sort of ad hoc replacement for a broken window here or there. And so people will like cover it with tape, or in this case on the, the left, a, a piece of like white cardboard. So I've been just sort of finding these temporary solutions to uh, fixing these broken windows and photographing them. And then I layer them on top of a, a painted panel. So I'll paint a pattern, like an op pattern or something on the panel itself to kind of help with like movement or framing or you know, changing speed of vision. So your tools, for making art include a camera, mm -hmm. you're also painting, and then you have mylar, mm -hmm. and you're running the mylar through an inkjet printer? That's right. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And do you do all of that here? Yeah. yeah, all of that's here. So I have a small digital camera, a laptop, um, inkjet printer, and then uh, MDO panels. It's like a, uh, sign painters panels. So do these people who are in the show with you, do they know each other? Some of, them know each, some of them know each other, some don't. Part of the idea was I know a lot of people that are from different circles, different art circles in Philadelphia. And so sometimes I think uh, this is the first time people have met each other. Uh, maybe they've seen each other in passing at different events, or maybe they've never been to the same events before. So, so can you talk a little bit about Philadelphia's art circles? Well, um, moving here seven-ish years ago, I knew uh, Chris Farrow, the, the uh, charcoal drawing uh, behind you. I've known him uh, since painting one class in uh, Minneapolis, and so I've known him for quite a while. Chris had moved here and had become uh, enmeshed in a representational uh, art circle. And then I also met Paul and Joy really quickly after moving here, and uh, they were sort of early part of uh, Vox. And so uh, I think it was uh, just sort of interesting meeting those guys really quickly and then knowing Chris for so long that I could see, like, not a whole lot of go-between, you know. I think some people I would see at uh, different events or something like that, but it just sort of seemed like they were a little bit separate. And my objective for doing a show like this it wasn't, like, having utopian ambitions or anything like that. Like, I'm not saying, okay, I'm going to, like, disrupt any of this, like, this world and this world and this world, but... Uh, is like a, not just a representational versus, you know, Vox versus this kind of thing. I think it is just different types of um, work going on. Do you think it comes out of the different art schools? There's so many different art colleges here. Well, you teach at two of them. Mm -hmm. um, and they all have, I don't want to say styles necessarily, but there's some concordance that goes on. I think that has something to do with that. Um, you know, for example, different... Artist-run spaces popping up in the Vox building now that are really driven by people from one school or people from another school. Uh, people from Grizzly Grizzly you know, teach with me also at Drexel University. Uh, or Tiger Strikes Asteroid would be another one maybe. Tyler people, I think. 
Um, I mean, there's obviously PAFA, too. PAFA being like a, a pretty big force in, in the city as well. So let's talk about um, your affiliation with Pentimenti Gallery. You've had a show there. Uh, two shows. Two shows there. Do you have anything coming up in the near future? Uh, nothing concrete right now, but um, uh, I've been with them. I'm trying to remember when the first show was. I think the first show was 2008 was the first show there. And we've just got a really good rapport. Like, um, I think we have a similar like aesthetics and similar philosophy. And uh, I wanted to work with somebody that, you know, would kind of give me a little bit of freedom to do what I wanted to do. And uh, I just sort of gravitated towards uh, her gallery. So you're working with photography, and your parents were photographers. Uh -huh. um, do you feel like your artwork is sort of chip off the old block? Did you grow up with um, making art, or you know, we 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 meaning my my brother and I had uh, access to cameras like when we were younger, you know, just cheap, you know, whatever you know, small cameras, and so I'm sure we like shot a lot of. Uh, uh, just dumb things, you know, like just having access to, to that kind of stuff. But I, I didn't really get into like making art until I was maybe high school, not really having any ideas about like, okay, can I make a living? Can I do this or whatever? I think it was just a matter of like, you know, what are you going to do? Your parents were supportive? <laughs> My parents were you know, very supportive and um, they have a business. They've been uh, uh, doing their business for probably close to 25 years, I think. Uh, and yeah, I think I just diverged a little bit like uh, along the line. So uh, the photography angle, uh, I think that kind of crept back into my work maybe a little bit after grad school. I think it actually came to a point where um, I was using the photography a little bit more and a little bit more straight. I never wanted the paintings to be uh, photorealistic necessarily, but um, it just sort of evolved this way. Well, now you're really merging both. You've got paint, you've got photography, you've got inkjet print, ink, you've uh, got ink. I still think about them in terms of paintings, even though they're made with like all these you know, different media. And, and I think the reason for that is it comes from an idea about the trajectory of painting. And so that could be simply like just mixing these different processes, but still thinking about it in the context of like this is supposed to be read as painting and not specifically contemporary photography. But I'm also perfectly aware that I think that it is fuzzy. Yeah. Well, is it up to the viewer to decide what it is? If you don't put a label on it, they just come to it and say, well, what in the heck is this? I don't like the idea of just leaving it totally open-ended. I think there's a time and a place for that, but I think it's also kind of shirking responsibility to just, as an artist, say, well, make of it whatever you want. You know, I think you need to give it a little bit of direction somehow. That's part of the reason statements are made, and that's part of the reason you know, we do things like this, and sit down and talk about work so that it's not just floating out there on the Internet or something like that with uh, nothing attached to it. Um, I am for like uh, the difference between uh, an immediate reception of something and, and also maybe thinking about it or having something that might plant a seed that you have to kind of chew on it for a little while too. You know, like I love instant gratification, but uh, but I also think it's I also think it's worth like spending a, a little bit of time mentally with something as well as standing in front of something for a little while. So, what do you say to your students in terms of? the tools they use? Do you allow them to multitask with the digital tools and the 
the ink and the paper and or do you keep it separate and let them come to the merger at some point? When I try to teach them like fundamentals of design, it's a little bit of a, uh, trying to communicate the basic concepts and trying to introduce, start to introduce like how to use the tools themselves. Here's the building blocks of like you know how to do something intentional, and uh, and I think that that's a really important thing to be able to communicate is like. You know, not just uh, set you loose in the lab and see whatever happens. Like, I think have, equipping them with, like, you know, the perceptual, conceptual, and physical tools. Like, just showing them, like, how to cut and measure something, like, accurately, I think is, like, an important starting point. I think if you just sort of bring them in and set them loose and say, you know, just be creative, they can be really creative, but uh, if you can do it in a, an intentional manner rather than, Maybe you get lucky, maybe you don't. You know, I think that that's something that you can actually teach somebody. If they like, do something accidental that works out in an interesting manner, trying to figure out why that was afterwards. So do you, um, do you encourage them to go into careers in art and design? Do you think that that's a viable way to... I, I try to be really upfront with them about what it's like. Um, the, the hard thing is... is uh, having them maybe in their first year of, of this classwork, you know, not to crush their spirits about how difficult it can be. Because uh, one thing I'll hear students say all the time is, well, I can always just teach. And I have to stop them and tell them, well, not as easy as it sounds either. You know, it's uh, pretty difficult to, like, get and maintain a teaching job, too. And These so, are undergrads telling you this? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, from... All, all the schools, not just the places I work at. I've heard this from like you know, different places. But if they go into design, it's my perception that Philly is a pretty good design town. There's a lot of architecture firms, a lot sure. of design firms. Yeah, I but I would say still is just as competitive as being an artist. Um, and I think that that goes back. I, I'm from Minneapolis originally. Minneapolis is also a design town, and uh, and my classmates at the Minneapolis College. Uh, of art and design that went into design thinking it would be a safer bet, you know, got out at the same time um, as I did and found it just as difficult to find any work. Um, you have to work just as hard, I think, to be a designer, to be a successful designer as an artist, absolutely. So, you know, you referred to it being hard, and I'm wondering if you would share with us some of the difficulties you found. Uh, before I moved to Philadelphia, I was... Uh, teaching full-time in a tenure-track position. I was really lucky to have that tenure-track position, especially as a, um, uh, in my late 20s. And I think when I moved here, I, I thought, well, I've got this experience, and I know a few people. I can probably find a part-time work here or there. And it took a little while. Okay, but wait a minute. You left a full-time tenure-track job? I left a full-time tenure-track job. So you moved job. to Philadelphia. Would you like to tell us that story? <laughs> Uh, it's it's a long, heartbreaking story. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm very happy to be here, nonetheless. Oh, no. <laughs> well, we're happy you're here, too. We've been speaking with Jacob Blunderby today. Thank you so much, Jacob. It was wonderful. Thank you. It was great to meet you. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.